you know, I went to art school. I was, you know, I made art in elementary school, high school. I went to art school and um, I've just um, done this forever. And it's just kind of, um, I don't really fit into a category, I think, because I do this. I make my work and I sell it online and I have, you know, shows at colleges or galleries, um, you know, once a year, every couple of years, but I have a big fan base online and it's just something that I've, um, I've mass produced my work for 30 years. And in the past 20 years I've had, you know, had this online presence, you know, I'm not a computer person, but I've had a website, you know, before there was Facebook and all that stuff. And I like, it's just funny. Like I've, I've sold all over the world. At what point was it clear to you that insofar as they actually do, that the economics of doing mass paintings, the way you do make sense? Um, I guess I always thought that you're an artist because you want to be an artist but you your chances of um you know um making money from it or being accepted or being you know you have specific reasons why you want to be an artist it's not you know when you're young it's for i'm an artist look at me and now it's like you know this is what i do and I'm proud that I do it. In terms of it actually sort of becoming a, a job and a career, you know, versus just something that I guess early on you idealize in a way. Yeah, I never thought of a job or career. You know, it was just kind of a strange obsession. Maybe I should have thought a little bit more about that, but that's fine. That's fine. That's not why. That's not why people have passions. You didn't think of a job or a career, but I have no idea what the numbers are, but I have to assume certainly in 2021, and I, I would imagine for the last several decades that it is incredibly difficult for just about anyone to make a, a career as a painter now. You kind of figured a way around that. It seems like you figured out a model that works. It really came from music and punk rock and the idea that if everybody, you know, like, I don't care that you don't like what I do. If you don't like what I do, I'll do it even more. And it gave me like endless energy and power somehow. You felt that early on that you were getting pushback from people, pushback from, from the art world, perhaps? Maybe pushback from myself. Like, I didn't, really didn't know what I did. I didn't know why I did what I did. I didn't know my audience. And then um, my wife and I were DJs, you know, at a college radio station, University of Virginia. And we were surrounded by a lot of um, creativity and just a lot of visual stimulus, like to be in a room in a basement at two o'clock in the morning with 10,000 album covers. And that knowing that each one of these vessels held somebody's dreams it makes um an incredible impression 
was part of the the impulse to take the approach that that you take was part of it an attempt to perhaps kind of recreate the live experience to to make painting into something more kinetic into something more in some ways kind of akin to performance art yeah in the beginning it was i wanted the idea that i did something to be useful i still think it's kind of useful i think it i think i um make messages. I say things in my work, in my paintings. And the, the performance, the, the live painting came later, but that seemed to actually happen kind of naturally. But the idea of like, I wanted my art to be useful. I wanted people to, you know, when I sold my stuff real cheap, people would get it and then they'd give it to their friends. Like I just went over to this his house and I bought eight paintings and I'm going to give you one and I'm going to give you one. So it felt, um, it just felt like I'm part of a system instead of I'm special. I've noticed in everything that mentions that the number of paintings that you've done, which the last I saw is, is more than 300,000. Is that, is that right? Yeah. How exact of a tally do you keep? Oh, I don't, I don't keep a specific thing, but it's about the amount of wood that I buy over the decades and chop it up. And everything I've seen that mentions the number of paintings that you've done, it always mentions the fact that you sold or gave away 300,000 paintings. And it, and it seems like that second part was, I assume, a big part of what got you up and running was just kind of handing these off to people or making them you know, uh, commodities, mass produced, making it something that somebody could just sort of almost stumble upon like they would an album or a postcard. You know, when you go to art school, it's just kind of like, you've got to be good. And like, I never understood what being good was. I never understood what being skilled or interesting was. And I just wanted to jump over that kind of feeling and I still feel that now yeah I just I just feel that I perform a service and it yeah I've been doing this a long time so the feelings aren't exactly when I was young when I was young I was you know flying in the air that I if you give away things and if things are cheap you have power you know it's like you surprise people I understand that you know and now I'm I'm more of a kind of a a business and I'm more of a kind of a feel like I'm a shaker. Like I create um, an object and I create it well and it goes into to the world. A shaker in terms of somebody making a chair, that sort yeah, of. Yeah, those shakers. Yeah. And not necessarily a mover and a shaker. But no, 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 I'm not that. In terms of viewing the object as a utility or as something that's functional, perhaps in a way that we don't necessarily consider traditional paintings to be yeah I've been doing this when you know my friends were in bands and they drive 70 miles to a show and the next day they had to drive 300 miles to a show and they had their cds and they sold them and you know this is before the computers before people had websites and all this stuff and it was like when you would go to the cool bookstore and drop off 40 pamphlets that you printed out 
that kind of thing. I was talking to Dan, who's who's working with you and and shot the book and is putting the book out. And I, I made a joke about NFTs, which I don't know if you're following that at all. You know, obviously it's a big topic of conversation in the art world, but I kind of view them as being almost like artificial or forced scarcity, taking a, a digital product, which is ubiquitous and turning it into something that has a number and something that theoretically can't be reproduced. And to me, in a lot of ways, that concept seems antithetical to what you've been doing, which is interesting because when it comes to art, it seems like traditionally the value is in the scarcity, right? The value is in the fact that you can only have this one painting or that this painter only did a finite number of of paintings. And it seems like something that consciously or unconsciously that you had pushed back against. I really think that it was about um, pretending that I was making CDs and and mixtapes and how important those are when you find them. I'd like to be thought of seriously what I do. I went to art school and I never, I always thought it was kind of silly how important people thought they were, their work was. And I, you know, it's like, I always worked in restaurants and I just like, you work in a restaurant and it's like, it's food, it's great. It's um, $7 or $18 and that's it. And that's the way I feel kind of about what I do, but it lasts. It stays in your house for, you know, 20 years or 10 years or 40 years. It could be a difficult thing to to reconcile because I, I think you said wanting to feel important, but without being taken too seriously. Is it, is it hard to, or was it hard to strike a balance between those two ideas? I think that's what gives me the energy. I think that's what keeps me doing it. Trying to figure out where you live in all of this? Yeah, anger is an energy. Is anger the right word? No, um, maybe if anger wasn't a bad word. There are connotations to the word anger, but... I always thought that that Sex Pistols song was so positive, you know. I just thought it was, you know. It, it, it gives you unlimited energy, you know, kind of feeling. <laughs> Contemporaneous to that, this idea of like the anger young man, which I think was applied to like Elvis Costello at the time, especially when you're younger, there is perhaps sort of a a righteousness and anger. Yeah, I wasn't angry when I was young. You've developed into that? No, it's not anger. It's not anger. It's just wanting to be able to do both things. You know, like I love, I love my art goes out all over the world, but I've had experiences where I've been, you know, respected in the art world. And it's like, I want to be able to do both because it doesn't seem real unless you can kind of surprise people all the time. Something I didn't know about you, and I I was reading on the the Kickstarter page that you had studied screen printing. And screen printing is obviously a little bit more a form of mass production than just kind of, you know, painting directly on a canvas. Certainly not mass production to to the extent of photocopying. You know, certainly that would have been an opportunity for you to create something en masse. Why did you gravitate more towards painting as your primary medium? Screen printing sucks, and it, and I just um, I'm pretty much a hardcore art. You know, I'm I'm a real artist. I really love art history, and I really love old art, and I really love modern art, and the way the way that the progression of the past hundred years of art has gone is it's about creating an environment, a world, a situation. And I just wanted to be in it. And I think that's why, you know, the painting life 
has always been easy for me because I always thought that when I work here is a performance that nobody gets to see. So I just, um, you know, I just was interested in making painting seem like it was a mass produced thing, but it's not, it's very different than printing or screen printing. You were alluding to being part of a a continuum, you know, in terms of painting in the the 20th and into the 21st century. Is there a continuum that you consider yourself a part of, you know, do you feel like, I mean, is Warhol's kind of a good signpost in terms of what you're looking to do and, and get out of your work? I guess everybody loves Warhol because he made it seem mysterious and silly to be an artist. And so it's, there's always this, the images are beautiful that he created, but we all know that it's was kind of a, a factory and that's great. So we're continually like thinking, is it good because we like it or is it good because it's hard or is it good because it's not hard to do? Like all those feelings. And that was a performance, what he did. You know, I mean, you know, we just think of everything that he did with the movies and all that stuff. It's like performance. I always got this impression of Warhol that, you know, use the word silliness, which is interesting. It's, it's spot on from the standpoint of, you know, screen printing a bunch of Campbell's soup cans and putting that in, in in an art museum. But he did seem like a very serious guy or, you know, maybe I'm getting the wrong read on him, but he seemed personally to be fairly serious. But I don't mean silly as being not beautiful. I think it, you know, changed the world. It changed the world. Do you feel like that, that silliness or playfulness, is that does that play a big part in the work that you create yeah it's a game it's a game it's a game that I get to paint whatever I want within boundaries because I know my audience but at the same time I get to do whatever I want in my images I make I make images and I make posters and I make signs and it's all kind of rolled up into one thing I kind of get to do whatever I want. How would you qualify that knowing your audience, you know, in terms of, are there things that you wanted to do that you don't think necessarily would fly with them? Not within painting. I do a lot of, I do other stuff. I like to do woodwork and to build things, but that, you know, I can't send that in the mail, but my paintings are very, um, it's, um, it's a language that I kind of created for myself all my brush strokes are very standardized. Like, um, you know, when you go to the museum and you look at Japanese, Chinese, or Korean painting, it's the strokes are very, they tell the story. And I've always felt that once I figured out what felt right for me with my hand and the brush, to create, um, you know, structures in the paintings that became a language. I don't try to, you know, I don't, I don't try to reinvent how I tell a story with the actual structure of what I do. It really feels like is an alphabet to me, my brush strokes. Your style then came out of a sense of feeling and not a sense of necessarily how you wanted it to look on the canvas? I think that's right. I think that's right. Like I tried to unlearn, like 30 years ago, I tried to um, unlearn everything about art so I could make something simple. The strokes became like an alphabet to me. How would you describe your strokes in contrast to other artists? I really don't know. I mean, I'm, 
it's kind of like um, pretend folk art, but it's not really pretend. I had somebody write an article about me saying I was a conceptual folk artist, and I thought that was pretty great, pretty highfalutin, but it's... Um, it's pretty accurate. It's an interesting distinction. Can somebody who went to school for art be a folk artist? Is that is that even possible? Oh, I think it is. I think it is when you reject everything. And like, I, I don't remember exactly how I felt when I originally felt this, because now it's just my home, how I work. But there was a clear sever. And it wasn't about like a style. It was about a structure of my life kind of thing in terms of outside of painting no 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 i still drink beer and watch tv sure i guess i just mean what what is what is what does structure mean in this instance how i work that that i didn't there wasn't um i didn't have to fear mistakes there wasn't any mistakes anymore how coupled are those two things how coupled this desire to create a new style for yourself and unlearn what you've been taught and mass production are those things just completely inexorably linked for you really haven't had a real job since being like i've worked many dishwasher jobs and that was always pretty sublime to me because it was always the best job in the restaurant because you were left alone and you did your thing and you were completely finished at the end of the night. And it was like, tomorrow was another day. I've never really thought about it that way, but we think of, of creating art, at least an idealized form of art as, as creating something that like will live on, if not forever, then will live on hopefully beyond you. But dishwashing is so ethereal from the standpoint of they're all going to be dirty again the next day. <laughs> you know, you spend eight or 10 or however many hours back there. I mean, you know, I've certainly worked my fair share of, of wage jobs too. And you do this all knowing that tomorrow you're just going to have to start it all over again. I loved it. Happiest times of my life. I loved being needed. And there was no question when your day was done. Those times when you weren't able to make a go solely based on being a painter, it never felt like a failure to you. Oh, no. I No. I mean, you know, I just, I haven't done that. Did that for t- about 10 years after I left art school and then kind of figured out a way to, you know, make it work. I guess I just mean that, you know, for most or at least a lot of people who want to make a living as a as an artist there's a frustration for that period of time which is hopefully temporary when you're not able to do that you know when you are forced to do this thing that isn't really your passion in the same way i i figured out all of this kind of at the age where a lot of people give up being you know their art dreams i i really did have the epiphany at age 35 and I've been doing this for 30 years. You know, you're going to be at 35, you're, you're doing your thing. And if the art thing's not working out, then you keep on doing your thing. But I kind of had a, within a, like a couple years or so, I kind of had a revelation, I guess. I was super into Howard Finster, um, the folk artist. I'm always in trouble when I forget that I love folk art. When I, Think about other things. Those things are really touchstones to um, being very kind of centered. There's a lot of metrics by which people gauge success. We were talking a little bit about the the financial version of that, which is, you know, are you able to 
to make a living at this and, and quit your dishwashing job. But there's also the question of exposure. And, and there's also a question of, is my work getting out there to people? Do you think that if for whatever reason that your stuff wasn't getting out there at the sort of speed and the quantity that it is now, that you would still enjoy being a painter, that you would still derive pleasure from the process of being a painter, even if it didn't end up out into the world as much as it does? I guess I really, it was all... All I ever wanted to do, you know, I'm not, not thinking about anything else. I really, I just never, you know, I'm just right now I have a, basically a three months waiting list, you know, for my website orders. And so it feels very, it's a secure feeling to know that, you know, people want my work and they accept what I do. What was that epiphany at age 35? Hmm. Let me see. I don't think about it that much. I know it happened, but I, let me see what the feeling was. I think it was a culmination of being inspired by musicians and knowing that their work was about a performance that night. And most of them or, you know, 100, 99% of them would like not have a band a year and a half later, but they lived for their total joy. And I, I had gone to art school, had gone to Yale um, five, six years earlier, where everything is very important and holy and careerist. And it all seemed, and then you graduate and okay, bye. And then it seemed kind of dead. And then where, where was the life of it all? I wasn't, you know, it's like, I don't know. So I was inspired by the people that created something out of nothing. Was there a moment when it was clear that you were on the right path? Yeah, pretty early on. Like when I was, you know, in my mid thirties, like I didn't know it was a big, big disaster the 10 years before that. And I, you know, I just like, oh, this is what I do. So it's, little success here, a little success there. But I reached a point where, wow, I'm, I guess I'm really doing this for myself. It does has nothing to do with anything else. There was never a disaster, though, to the point that you felt like there's just no hope of me being a, a painter professionally? No, but it reminded me of something that did happen to me that was very bad. After my sort of golden road of being kind of amazing... I was invited to perform at the Venetian in Las Vegas and they built a a structure for me and a stand. And I'm like in the food court area in this gigantic casino with the, um, the, the paintings of the, uh, the sky on the ceiling. Yeah. And And, yeah. And so I had, I designed (laughs) a six sided kind of structure that I'm painting in. It lasted like four days and they, like, I had worked, I had worked for about a year creating paintings for that event. And then in like four days, they pulled the plug and it, and then, then I'm at the airport, you know, they, they gave me some money to go home and I'm at the airport and I'm in a, I guess it was like a TGI Fridays or something. It was in the morning. And then on the TV, it was 9-11 happening. And it was like, God damn it. You know, and it was like, um, so I was pretty um, freaked out for about five years about 
what's the reason to be an artist? You know, if you can be just like crushed, you have so many good intentions and then doesn't really matter. Everyone has those moments in their career. It, it On the face of it doesn't sound completely devastating. What, I mean, obviously 9-11 was completely devastating, but, but what was it about that moment exactly that, that, you know, you would point to as being a low point for you? Cause I, um, the past like six or seven years before that, every month was better and better and better and better. And it was just like, you know, oh, I'm in Las Vegas. I'm going to show them that, I'm, you know, this is so absurd. And this is, I know this is not going to be what I want, but I'm going to show that I can, you know, burn the house down anyway. You felt like you had hit a sort of a new plateau. Yeah, that it was, I knew it was, you know, absurd and a joke but I just wanted to try it anyway. And then I felt like Icarus right there. You thought it was going to be absurd and a joke of it in a way it kind of ended up being a joke on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you said earlier, you, you know your audience, um, you know, and I assume that, you know, your audience is probably, a lot of them are, you know, pavement fans or, you know, Apples and Stereo fans, fans of all these bands you've done paintings for as somebody who has spent some time in Las Vegas for work and has spent some time at the Venetian. I would assume that there isn't probably a lot of overlap between the people who go to the Venetian <laughs> and, and your audience. Yeah. But I wanted to do that anyway. I just wanted to, um, I just wanted to, you know, I know that a huge part of, of you really coming into your own was, as you said, forgetting and, and unlearning a lot of the stuff you had learned. But yeah, somebody who went to art school and as somebody who studied screen painting and all these things, was there any long-term value in it for you? Oh, sure. The discipline, the skill. Sure. I mean, art school is fantastic. If um, I really kind of don't know what art school's for, but I know it's good, you know. <laughs> I think that's college for a lot of people where it's, you know, not necessarily, (laughs) it's not learning a trade. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a lot of cartoonists on the show. So I I talked to a lot of people who make comics and there does seem to be, maybe this is a relatively recent thing, but there does seem to be kind of a um, professional or commercial aspect to that side of things to at least sort of teach you how to, how to navigate the world a little bit. Was that a value that you got out of art school at all? No, I don't really. I liked I like seeing artists walk around in the hall, but I didn't really have anything to say. I like seeing famous people, you know, but I didn't, I was too young, I guess. I don't know. I didn't have enough failures. You know, it's like if you're, if you had failures and you're hungry to learn, then you can learn. I didn't, I just kind of was young. We just discussed the Venetian incident, which was a, a kind of a failure onto itself. I guess that arrived in a, a point in your career when you had already figured out what you wanted to do and develop yeah. as an artist. Yeah. But what were those early failures like? You know, what what happened along the way that really you feel like set you on the right path? I've always loved working, but I never, you know, my work was kind of like regular. I just kind of, is I kind of did nice regular stuff and it didn't really turn anybody on that much. It didn't, kind of didn't turn me on. And so I just, um, I guess I looked at folk art, how they were on a mission to say something. And I like German art. I like Immendorf and Kiefer. And I kind of guess, I always think that I made this up, but I think it's a real quote that he said, 
he really had didn't have anything to say. And that's what he's saying with his art. And I thought that was, I hope he said that. I'd be a genius if I made that up myself. And I just thought that was just gave me, you know, unlimited energy. It's almost a paraphrase of Plato, right? I know that I know nothing. Oh, I got to check that out. Being power or value in knowing your limitations. Yeah. And you feel, you feel centered then because of that. If you're honest. (laughs) It can be a motivator too, though. It can be a motivator, you know, seeing great art and seeing people who are really good at something. I mean, it it can go either way. Seeing, Seeing something done really well can either be a motivator or it can stop you dead in your tracks. There are heights that you won't necessarily be able to attain. Yeah, I never felt that. I never felt that. I mean, I never thought I'd get any heights, but it was just something, you know, I was elementary school and I wanted to be an artist. It's just, and so I never, maybe that's a weird limitation too, because it never, like success never kind of was a thing. It was just, this is what I do. And, but I was kind of, smarter than just an average hippie making art success maybe not being the the primary motivator but certainly it sounds like over the course of your career that when you did find success you wanted to continue on that path when you figured out something that worked for you you know you you continue to go in that direction it's kind of an incredible feeling to know that there are thousands of people that have my work in their house. I made, you know, I didn't, I made it and I sent it to them. I want to get back to this idea. I, I think you had said earlier that there are no longer flaws or, 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 the, or that you don't perhaps see, perceive flaws in your work the same way that you're, you're used to. What was that change? That's my favorite thing. And I always have to remember that because I make my work, I think is inspired by like art movements in the sixties and seventies that was process art where you set up a structure and you follow through with it and what happens happens. And then it's, that's it. And I, everybody's kind of, um, you know, like minimal artists, you know, they do like abstract or something like that. But for me, I like an artist solo wit will have an art piece that draw like, 100,000 lines on the wall of MoMA and that's his piece. And it's, it's something that he's typed out and then the piece of paper is the artwork and it's given to his assistants, like eight assistants. And they draw for two weeks, the hundred thousand lines and graphite pencil on the wall of MoMA. And so I, I think, I think like that I paint, I paint and the stuff goes, you know, I wrap it up and it goes to UPS and it goes out in the world. It's just kind of, um, it's all part of the art in terms of no flaws. It's just, they get what I do that day. And I try my best because my best meaning I try to be what I want. It's never, it's never good enough for me. It's always kind of like, (gasps) but I still, you know, it's what I, it's just what I do. When you're in that process of making several, you know, however many paintings at the same time, you have a reference, you're putting paint on the canvas. And what is the goal of that specific stroke? Is it to make it as close to the source material as possible? Not really. I mean, I, I wanted to, 
reference that, but I use that the source material is a structure for me to react to. And I just, I want it to look good. I don't want to, yeah, I just want it to look good to me and to people because I do create something, you know, I, people kind of expect what I do to look like what they think I do. That's not a trap either. It's just kind of a, a system. Look like what they think you do as far as what your style is or the process yeah. of creating. Yeah. You know, Disney didn't go, you know, Jackson Pollock, you know, he, he did his thing. There's always going to be a difference in reproduction, regardless of how it's done. And certainly there's a lot more opportunity for these differences when you're just putting paints on a canvas, especially, you know, at a fairly quick speed. I assume that you're not introducing those on purpose, that those are just a result of the process, that that you're kind of at least trying to sort of approximate each of these paintings as closely to one another as possible. Yeah, I, I would, you know, if it was my choice, I'd want them to be identical, but it's the physical limitations of painting and painting and painting and painting and painting and painting. You're, you're, com- I'm constantly moving. It's just, it's a game. There's a dude called Morris Katz who, he was in Guinness World Book as being like America's most prolific artist. And um, I was obsessed with him. And one time there, I guess 30 years ago, there used to be a Ripley's, believe it or not, museum in the basement of Empire State Building. And he was there painting. You know, it's like I knew about him before. Well, I, I guess that's why we went there. You know, we got a, bought a picture from him and he was so happy. And, you know, but his pictures were all like slightly different. He didn't try to to try to reproduce them as a, like a process, like, but I've always loved, I kind of always loved, you know, the kind of silly show business of that. I mean, he was on Johnny Carson and, you know, it's like, I love that you could do something so stupid and so beautiful. Like I, I found one of his pictures on the street a couple of years ago, you know, somebody just thought it was garbage and they, you know, they put it on the street and it's like, that's a Morris Katz painting. You know, it's like, I mean, he's, you know, I've seen my paintings on the street. You know, I've seen people, I've seen my paintings on the street. Like people don't throw them in the trash. They put them on the street, hoping that somebody else will pick them up. And it's like, I mean, you don't see that in like Kansas or Omaha. It's like just in Greenpoint or Williamsburg. And it's like, it's riveting. It's like, I should have picked it up. But, I, you know, like the last one that I saw was, you know, something that I did like 25 years ago and it looked good. It looked a little crazy, looked a little rough around the edges, but um, I like the idea of making something that just exists in the world. Like it's something that maybe everybody knows what it is, that it just has no edges. It just flows. Like I love, I love Christo when he did the gates, I guess that was 16 years ago. You know, Christo just, does big things that have no edges and it's the conceptual thing and it's a pop thing and it makes people happy and I got his autograph like I, I went to Virginia Commonwealth University first and 1977 he gave a lecture and I got his autograph and I don't know I just I love when I just love when art is not totally correct you know, and kind of wants to be 
in the real world, not just in the art world. What emotion does that stir in you to see your painting on the street? Um, it just means that I, it, it's a weird feeling. It doesn't feel, and honestly doesn't feel like a betrayal. It feels like, you know, when people put, put their um, textbook outside, it feels like that. They, you know, they don't throw the books in the garbage. They put it on the outside on the sidewalk. Like a sign that says, too good home. Yeah, yeah. Do you have favorites in batches? It gets complicated <laughs> because I can see the flaws and I can see what works and what doesn't work. It's just the system, knowing that the system works, knowing that I tried hard that day and knowing that everything's wrapped up and goes to UPS, you know, on Friday normally is a good feeling. And you can tell years later looking at something that that was a good day. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But also I'm surprised. I'll see something that I knew was terrible and then I'll see it uh, 15 years later. Not so bad. (laughs) Not so bad. In some ways you see more of the flaws, but you also can appreciate maybe what you didn't see. I can go on. um, I forgot what it's called. It's called price point or price worth or something like that. There is a I guess it's related to Google and it's all the stuff that I put on eBay because when, when the website is slow, I, I do stuff to put on eBay and there's like 15 years worth of work on eBay. And there's like uh, 6,000 6, like groups of paintings on eBay. And it's like, it's unbelievable. Like, wow. Like this is like, it kind of makes me think, you know, like, wow, there's a real story in this. Like there's thousands of things that I've, my paintings that I put on eBay, you know, this is, um, this is a, a separate story. This is kind of wild. <laughs> and they're there. They're recorded. <laughs> do you hold on to any or do they all just go out into the no, world? No, no, no. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. It feels like if I hold on to it, then why do more? I'm going to go get my painting off the wall and, and show it to you. And I just want to... A reaction. Okay. <laughs> I want a reaction. And, and I, and I kind of want to know, like, you know, I remember... I remember when I bought it and I just sort of want to know if there's a, if there's a story there and if you can kind of place it in time. Is that, is that okay? That's fine. <laughs> it just occurred to me that it might be fun to, to do this. I, you know, cause I really <laughs> make so many of these. I wouldn't like normally do this with an artist, but uh, it's kind of a unique opportunity. Okay. I painted it November 2nd, nine, uh, 2013. What is it? Oh, Charlottesville. Oh, Charlottesville snowstorm. I like it. It's um, not exactly what I'm doing now, so I judge it differently. It's looser, but it kind of looks cooler, <laughs> and I like the yellow. I'm not using yellow right now in my in my paintings. Don't know what that object is right now. It might be it might be a tree stump in the front there. Yeah, and it looks like it is um, like a Hampton Inn. In Charlottesville, that's what I think. In a case like that, though, that you know, I, I know a lot of what the book is about, and a lot, a lot of what you do are these um, are the albums. But um, that would have just been kind of a slice of life. Yeah, mostly. I mean, I do albums because I they're kind of um, they're kind of a, like um, pictures of the past because people don't even know what albums look like. They get the music, and it's sort of like you know 
farewell to getting albums and people like them and I like doing them too. But I don't think of like my most, what I do are the albums. I just think what I do is kind of something in and spit it out kind of thing. I, I think of the way the photography has changed when we all bought, when we all got smartphones, right? Where it's just like, we don't put as much value in a single object. Is, is the source material similar for this where there's value in something that is just like a Hampton Inn in a snowstorm? Oh, and yeah, anything. Um, because you own right there the time that I was involved in it. You own a part of me, a physical part of me. You know, that, that's why like paintings, you go to a museum, like all artwork is great, no matter what the intentions are. But paintings are kind of kind of a creepy spiritual thing because they're very specific to somebody's hand and eyes and movement. And it really, it's a frozen amount of time. It's not a concept. It really is about somebody's time. When we look at the mirror painting, we're, we're, in the, you know, in the zone for hours and hours, wherever mirror was, it's, you know, we're not looking at a Vermeer painting. We're next to, you know, the spiritual ashes of Vermeer kind of thing. It's a, it's, it'll never, painting will never go away as being kind of um, a zone that people can't really describe.